Thank you. Now that we have your attention, <laughs> I want to uh, give each of them 30 seconds or so to say who they are and uh, why they're here. And we'll start with Joseph DeSenclos, who actually is part of the livability team. Yes. I, hello. I'm Joseph DeSenclos. I'm the program manager of the livability team. We have six outreach workers, and we operate in a 120-block square area. Prior, I've been doing that in the Downtown Improvement District for four years now. Prior to that, I uh, worked for St. Stephen's Human Services. You'll hear that organization come up quite a bit because we were instrumental and continue to be instrumental in the Downtown 100 program. Shane Zahn used to work for Target in asset protection, I believe is what they call it. Uh, tell us what you do now. Yeah, I'm director of safety initiatives for the Minneapolis Downtown Improvement District, which is similar to your DSA here. We cover about 120 square blocks, um, run our ambassador program, safety and clean, but my role is really on uh, really building uh, public and private collaboration efforts around safety initiatives, whether it's violent crime, livability, quality of life issues, or chronic offenders. Um, and we do that with a, a public-private collaboration approach. So we have a lot of initiatives, and one of the initiatives that we'll be talking today is the Downtown 100 Chronic Offender Program. And Heidi Johnston, you actually helped found the Downtown 100 Program. So for the last five years, I've been managing the Downtown 100 Program as the first precinct community attorney. So what's relevant about our community attorney program, and most important, is the Minneapolis City Attorney's Office has a city attorney assigned to each precinct, so I actually had my office was next to the first precinct inspector, which is our downtown area. And in my roles and responsibilities as a prosecutor, I did community-facing prosecution and managed our downtown 100 program. I am currently assigned to our specialty court, so we do have a lot of diversionary programs as well. So I do DWI court, mental health court, we have a veterans court program, and then we also have a felony drug court which I'm not part of as a city attorney. But what's most relevant to this group is the time I spent with the Downtown 100 and managing that program. Ron Cunningham, you're in probation, and you are the one who knows up close and personal who the Downtown 100 are. Uh, yeah, that's correct. I, I'm Ron Cunningham. I'm a probation officer for Hennepin County, which is Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. Uh, I am the sole probation officer for the program that we call the Downtown 100. I've done that for roughly the last 10 years, really since shortly after its inception. Mike Jose, you're an assistant police chief famous for changing the hot pursuit policy of the Minneapolis Police Department away from hot pursuits. I don't know about fame, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I am assistant chief Mike Jose from Minneapolis Police Department, uh, and uh, that was the driving pursuit, not uh, driving pursuit. Uh, but that was just one of our recent issues this year. Uh, I I'm here as a representative, obviously, of the police department uh, administration, but also I was a precinct commander and inspector in the first precinct. Inspector in our department kind of is the commander of an area of the city, uh, kind of like you're the chief of that area of the city. And so I was I've been the inspector of our downtown area and prior to that I was a lieutenant in the downtown area previously so I'm very familiar with all of the issues in uh, downtown with crime and uh, recidivism. Okay, Lisa, let's start with you. What, what made Minneapolis decide, first of all, to compile this list and that, so that you weren't doing enough to address this problem? Me? Yes. Heidi? Heidi. I'm sorry. Heidi. Okay, Cross I just wanted to make sure. Yes. So, 
Our program has been up and running for about 10 years, and when you listen to the discussion or the introductions, it was a very similar process. We had a study of 30 chronic offenders in the city of Minneapolis and their cost to the system, and the end result of that study showed that these 30 people had an impact of over $2 million to the city's direct budget. And everyone kind of shook their head like, well, what are we going to do? What can we do that's different? And at the time, the first precinct city attorney was Lois Regnier Conroy. She's now a Hennepin County judge. But she said, maybe we can look at prosecution a little differently. And so she led up the creation of the Downtown 100 program. She said, let's work with our street outreach workers in downtown. Let's work with probation. Let's work with the police and try to come together with a collaborative response. The only trick in that formulation was we did not have any dedicated probation resources for misdemeanors. One key that I have learned through this two-day experience in Seattle that's very important to note is you guys have a municipal court system and then a district court system. Minneapolis got rid of their municipal court over 30 years ago. So we have one court, it's Hennepin County District Court, Fourth Judicial District, which means felony cases are heard by the same judges as misdemeanors and the same judges that hear our civil block as well. That system has its pros and its cons, but one of the real issues we faced as prosecutors was we consistently heard, well, that's just a misdemeanor. And it was very easy for judges to say it's just a misdemeanor. Well, other crimes that are also misdemeanors, your first DWI is a misdemeanor, a domestic violence case is a misdemeanor, a, a fifth degree assault is a misdemeanor. We're like, we recognize that some of these crimes, some of these livability offenses may be lower level, but they're still crimes and we'd like to address them in a more meaningful way. So when we formulated the Downtown 100, we said, please give us a probation officer. The DID said, we'll help you fund a probation officer. So at our inception, we had a dedicated Minneapolis city attorney that made every appearance on every case for the Downtown 100. We had a dedicated probation officer and Mr. Ron Cunningham that would manage the caseload for whom probation was appropriate. And then we had weekly strategy meetings where we would basically case manage. So this is everyone that's coming to court this week. What's the desired outcome? What's the path to get there? And then we have monthly court watch meetings where we bring our results out to our community. Um, we're nine years down this road. The first year, two years, we're definitely growing pain. Social service workers and prosecutors and police in the same room led to a lot of crossed arms, stern faces, even a few tears along the way. But the hallmark of our program now is how well this team works together and that we are all here to address you as a team. We travel together. We've done all of these presentations together because the hallmark of our program is that we bring a team approach to addressing our chronic offenders. So Heidi, what are the, what, how do you measure your results and what are they? So we measure our results because the program is run through the city attorney's office, we clearly look at our role as a prosecution office. So our primary metric is recidivism. So we look at the year before someone is in the program and then we measure it to the year someone is in the program to look for any reductions in recidivism. In that first year, we had a 75% reduction in recidivism. 
I can honestly tell you that's an incredibly shocking result. We would have hoped for 20%. We would have been happy with 10%, but when we ran the numbers and we're at 75%, you could have knocked us over. Um, and we maintained over 70%, getting close to 79%. About four years ago, we started a focus group of 18 to 24-year-old offenders. Truth is, they bring a different dynamic to the group, but even last year, with our 18 to 24-year-old offenders, we still had a reduction of 55%. So we've never dipped below a 50% reduction in recidivism. Okay, so that's pretty impressive. Who on the panel was crossing their arms at the beginning of this process? You. Uh, me? No. <laughs> Joseph, no. he pointed to you. Oh, I... I You're I, on the livability team. I, I actually was not crossing my arms, but uh, many of my colleagues in the human service world uh, definitely were crossing their arms. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've talked a little bit uh, over the last couple days about just, you know, the human service program. They also have a bias towards law enforcement, the business community, and it's about coming together and understanding the roles that everybody has, understanding the, you know, maybe the organizational policies and procedures, and then really boiling it down to we're all here for the same reason. So when we go through those rough patches where, you know, there might be some challenging case and the human service side is on one side of the, the uh, aisle opposed to maybe the uh, criminal justice world, um, just going back to the fact that we're in this room for the same reason. We wanna you know, uh, reduce recidivism for the folks that we serve, provide services, a very you know, client-centered approach to everybody that's on the, uh, the caseload, and ultimately housing uh, for folks. So you know, going back to that, going through the growing pains, um, uh, you know, today I discussed like, uh, you know, group dynamics, the storming, or, you know, storming, norming, and performing stages of uh, group dynamics. We go through that every once in a while, depending on, you know, if people move on, we get new people on the committee. Uh, but we have Ron Cunningham, who's been here since the inception. So we have, you know, Ron's been our rock, and, you know, people come in and we, um, uh, you know, collectively work together because we are there every week for the same, same I'll get purpose. to Ron in a moment because he seems to be the, the key to this here. But I want to ask you, how did you deal with the, um, the perception that the cops tend to deal with human misery with jail time? Uh, well, for one, um, it was about showing up. You know, showing up and working with law enforcement, and it took time, you know. Um, you know, law enforcement, the one thing that I, I would train my staff is they're trained in a whole different way. They have a whole different toolkit, and it could be, you know, if someone's passed out on the ground, instead of saying, hey, you can call St. Stevens or call some other program, uh, uh, and we can take them to detox, it, it, it went had to go beyond just those, you know, that kind of conversation and actually showing up and being a resource for for law enforcement and really working through stuff. So when they started to see that, you know, they could go, uh, you know, have the outreach programs address the low level liv livability issues and maybe get someone to detox or to the hospital or maybe back home or to a shelter to a different location, uh, opposed to, you know, taking them, to, taking them to jail or taking them to detox, that was very helpful. So you'd actually so, give them a ride to the place they needed to go? Definitely, definitely. I mean, there, there are folks, uh, you know, a lot of times the outreach workers already know them. So when we show up on scene, we can, it's a whole different dynamic. 
a uh, whole different interaction because we have that built-in relationship. And then when the clients that we serve see that we're working with law enforcement in a uh, more compassionate uh, uh, approach, um, that goes a long way for that officer the next time they engage with the individual. Mm -hmm. So when we can go back and say, you know, yeah, you ran into Officer X, um, he reached out to us, gave us a call because he was concerned for you. You know, that goes a long way for that, that person who's on the streets, uh, maybe having a lot of police interactions, having a different perception of law enforcement. When they start looking at it as, you know, you know this officer is concerned for my well-being and, public, and their public safety as well because we have a lot of folks that are unsheltered, uh, you know, a lot of people experiencing uh, homelessness in our shelter system or supportive housing settings that are also very, very concerned about public safety. Okay, Mike Jose is an assistant police chief. Did you get along with this guy in the beginning? Um, uh, I have always gotten along. Have you, <laughs> Joseph? <laughs> I don't think you've agreed all the time. <laughs> no. Um, it doesn't shock me that when you put uh, some officers in a room with social workers and uh, outreach people that they might have a different perception as to what uh, the right solution for uh, a criminal uh, act that took place is. Um, but I had said at an earlier meeting today, I'm sure everybody thinks that being a police officer is really a fun and you know exciting job. But uh, when you uh, spend uh, days, weeks, years uh, dealing with the exact same issues uh, from day to day and, uh, and some of the same people from day to day uh, and you're that beat officer uh, writing the same citation to the same individual uh, week after week and you don't see any change happening <coughs> or you're picking up that individual and taking them from the ground either to an ambulance or to detox or something like that and tomorrow you're picking up the same person uh, from the same spot. Uh, it's, it turns out to be less than glamorous at times and so when this program kicked off and uh, we knew there'd be some opposition with the officers uh, because it's just what they know and they do. Um, and it's not like the whole department is doing this. It's a very small <laughs> pocket of the city that works in a tight area, 120 blocks of downtown. Um, they're assigned to our day beat. And then we usually have like two officers that are assigned to this, this program specifically and it becomes their kind of like bread and butter and then they kind of share it with other officers on their shift and other officers in the precinct if they need help with something. But um, if all of a sudden a person they've picked up every day for the last, you know, so many months or years uh, is not standing on that corner doing whatever issue it was they've been dealing with, uh, eventually the cops kind of go, where did that guy go? And, uh, you know, someone like Joseph can say, well, we got him sober and we got him in housing somewhere and and the person just isn't out there anymore and eventually they may come back around um, but over time the officers I would say and you'd have to ask the panel who's worked with the officers more than me because they don't tell me much I'm the assistant chief but uh, <laughs> I think they've enjoyed uh, working with this group and I know that every person who's been on this committee over the years 10 years and it's it's changed over many many times they can personally name every single officer that ever worked uh, with that committee and they know their first and last name and they can tell stories about good things that have happened between the officers and, mm -hmm. and the, the people they're dealing with. So, so the officers aren't rolling their eyes at this? No. 
All right, let me ask you, Shane. Shane's on, you used to be, uh, you used to try to stop the merchandise from walking off at, uh, at Target. Um, how, tell the crowd what you told me about how to deal with shoplifters successfully. What? You know, this, this isn't a cookie cutter approach. You know, one of the things, imagine this, how, how are relationships built, especially new relationships? It's over time and trust is earned, right? Imagine this group today, if we met every week and talked about some common goals, would we build a relationship up? Absolutely we would. Imagine that meeting happening every Wednesday with our city attorney, our probation officer, social services, that's what we do. Uh, we didn't come here and I had to call Heidi and say, do you know who I am? I'm Shane Zahn from DID. We have a relationship because of this program. Now every month, that same relationship happens with our community. You can come and talk about issues with our chronic offenders and we share information together and try to take a holistic approach. Whether it's shoplifting, whether it's other issues, our goal is to really try to reduce some of the barriers that these offenders are having and get them on the right trajectory. And it really takes everybody to do that. Um, I've been honored to be able to work with the Assistant Chief Jose, Ron Cunningham, uh, Heidi, Joseph. I've learned so much from this program just because of the repetition of us meeting together and collectively trying to work together to problem solve. And every day, I don't wanna lie, this isn't maybe not for Seattle, but it is working for us and I don't wanna to try to sell this to you. I more importantly get a relationship off of this, but it's not just about the statistics like Heidi was sharing. That 50% is somebody's life. This is a person. Um, and those stories make a difference because somebody needs help and we're there to help them. And we wanna use incarceration as a last resort, but we do sometimes use it. And I wanna be clear on that too. Um, and where we've seen struggle sometimes when we first started is when I hear police officers saying, that person needs housing, and I hear social service going, no, they need to be locked up. I'm like, how did we get here? What, <laughs> are you kidding me? <laughs> um, and it, I, that's a true story. Um, I've, had, I've seen officers in uniform, and I shared this story earlier that is in a, site, uh, a suit and a tie, and what does that usually tell me? That you're going to court on a case. And Officer Kyler, one of our beat officers, I'm like, what case are you working on? He's going, one of our Youth uh, offenders, chronic offenders, uh, was in the wrong spot at the right time. I'm going to court for him. He was with the wrong group. I'm like, whoa, I, whoa, whoa. usually you're on the other end of trying to put them in jail. Um, it's building a culture and a relationship that is happening with this group on a more frequent basis. And it's really important that that, that relationship happens. And a decade later, here we are talking to you. Who I would have never thought in a million years I'd be in your beautiful city. This is the first time I've ever visited your city, by the way. It is beautiful. I'm gonna be back with my family because it is cool. Um, so I'm really excited that you've even got us here talking to you because I'm very proud of the work that we're doing, but you, you guys are also doing a lot of great work. You should be proud of the, your city too because it is, it is an amazing city, so thank you. But I still want you to address the shoplifting issue. Because yeah, we have businesses yeah, you know, here. Yeah, so yeah. Target, I see some of my uh, Target uh, uh, peers over there. Um, you know, issues with shoplifting can be very frustrating. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes with, you know, especially with shoplifting, you have to get at the organized crime. Um, a lot of times these individuals are shopping under, uh, shoplifting under organized crime, meaning that they're not stealing it for themselves, they're stealing it to resell that. So just like drug dealing, right, you can take away the drug dealer, but if you actually don't take the top organization down, 
that's harder to reload. You have to rebuild. Um, so what we're looking at is fencing operations. Where are the top fencing operations? And working with like target market investigation teams, Nordstrom market investigation teams, where is this merchandise being brought to? And how do we disrupt the fencing operation? Because many of the smaller, especially in Minneapolis, can't afford to have assets protection like Target does. They can't afford to have that security guard at the front door. Um, so what are we doing to collectively disrupt some of the fencing operations? So this is a new thing that we're actually working with our county attorney, sheriff's department, our city attorney on, is how do we get more strategic on disrupting those, those local fence operations? And it's evolved because not only fencing is brick and mortar, where else is it going? It can be bought online. Um, so it's very organized and some of it is you know, very sophisticated, but bringing the partners to disrupt those fencing operations is another thing that we're looking at in Minneapolis. And Ron Cunningham, um, when I talk to these people, they, they seem to look to you as sort of the key to this operation, as the guy whose exclusive job it is to, to be the probation, uh, probation contact for these downtown 100. Can you lead us through what your typical work day is like and what exactly you do? Uh, um, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll try. Um, I was just talking to somebody earlier. I, um, I don't know what other probation officers do. I'm a, I'm a probation officer, and my relationship with clients is, is always an involuntary relationship. In doing the Downtown 100, and, and we might get into that later about how I, we, my clientele comes from a specific group of people that we have uh, identified over the over the previous year. So I I might know them by name or I might know them by uh, by pictures, um, but just just because of their history, I know that they if they end up on probation, they would they would come most likely come to me. Um, Generally, you know, an average day for me is I start, I start on the street. As I work my way into downtown uh, Minneapolis, I make a drive by uh, our largest shelter, um, Salvation Army. I make a drive by there just to see if I see any of my clients that are walking down the street, sitting on the sidewalk, stumbling across the road, intoxicated, whatever, whatever it might be. Then I might stop at a, uh, if I'm lucky enough to have somebody that I've been able to engage with and, and get them in a treatment program, I might stop by a treatment program um, just to check in on them, let them know I haven't forgot about them, let them know that I'm following their progress and how they're doing, um, and uh, you know address that part of it. I will frequently, um, when we get back, I don't know if I can do it this week, I have a guy um, that's done well and made some progress, and I will take him personally. I drive clients all over the place. Um, he's got an apartment. We found him a futon on uh, Craigslist, so I'll take him. I'll take him in my truck, and we'll go pick up the futon, and we'll bring it back to his apartment, and um, I will help him. I'll help him set that up. I spend a lot of time in court. My folks end up uh, in custody quite a bit. Uh, for various reasons, might be on a probation violation, it might be on a new case, it might be on a, on a, on a hold for, for some, uh, for some uh, new case. Um, so I spent a lot of time in court, I spent a lot of time, um, you know, on the phone, tracking down 
individuals that don't want to be tracked down. Um, they, uh, when someone has a, you know, no permanent address, no phone, no nothing, um, I, I utilize law enforcement, I utilize the uh, street outreach, uh, or some of our human services agencies, the Minneapolis Police, Metro Transit Police. I'll ask them, hey, if you see so-and-so, tell them I'm looking for them. I'll get a call throughout the day or a text from various officers saying, hey, I've got, you know, we're out with so-and-so on Ninth and Nicollet. Uh, do you want to talk to them? Or I might be in the area. I'll show up there. Um, I like my clients to see me with law enforcement. I like my clients to know that I'm following them and I'm watching what they're doing. But I want them also to know that I'm supportive about when they're making uh, appropriate and, and right decisions. How do you, as one person, keep track of 100 people? Well, it's not necessarily 100. I have my, I think my caseload now is in the mid-50s, something like that. Um, at, at any given time, I would guess that probably almost 100% of my caseload would be in some form of uh, violation or noncompliance with their probation. Um, so it's forced me to kind of take a look at that and say what is worth responding to immediately um, versus, you know, this violation, is that something that I can deal with without bringing it to the attention of the court? What kind of leverage can I, you know, utilize this for to try to uh, massage this individual to move in the direction where I want them, where I want them to go. So I don't have a hundred. I have roughly between fifty and sixty. I don't. I couldn't do a hundred. Is there some point where you tell somebody do this or else? Yes, absolutely. Give me an example. Um, well, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a couple examples. Is that? Uh, folks, we always say folks plead to get out of jail. They don't plead to get into jail. And I mean, and, and we know that, and I know that. So if someone's booked into jail, we have identified them as, you know, maybe a future uh, client. So in order for that person to get out of jail, the offer that's made to him by the prosecuting attorney is, if it's on a misdemeanor, it's a one-year probation, it's a 90-day sentence, and a chemical health assessment, maybe a stay away order from some place or somebody, generally a no use of alcohol um, and probation specifically to me. I am the only probation officer out of, someone asked me, I have no idea how many probation officers are in Hennepin County, maybe 300, I, I, I don't know. Um, but I am the only person that a judge can specifically say he's on probation to, to run. Um, so, I will frequently have to issue a violation because any, everybody wants to get out of jail and they'll agree to anything, but they have no intention or no, no capability of following through with the stuff that they agreed to do. I give them a period of time. I don't hear from them. They're the ones that are on probation. It's your responsibility. It takes me about 15 minutes to write a violation report and request a warrant. I know they'll get picked up again on 9th and Nicollet and I'll, you know, I'll, the first time I meet them might be when they're in custody. I'll go back to see them and say, hey, I'm your probation officer, where, where have you been? 
um, the only way you're going to get out today is if you agree to do this. Um, I also will tell people that, uh, you know, you have to get a chemical uh, health assessment. They may, I take it in steps. They may not want to do that because they, for whatever reason, don't think that their use is a problem. They don't want to go to treatment. They just don't want to do it because they don't want to do it. Um, so I spend some time talking to them about, you know, let's just do the assessment and then we'll, there's multiple steps to the assessment. Let's get the assessment done and then we'll worry about what the recommendation is. Um, then, there, then once we get that done, the recommendation might be for some sort of uh, treatment program. Uh, if it's a chemical treatment program, I wouldn't force them to go. I would give them the option to say, you don't have to go. But if the behavior continues, if you're picked up on another you know, chemical offense, if you're booked into jail, if you get a ticket, <coughs> if you do any of those things, we're not going to revisit the idea of treatment. You've just told me you don't want to go. Um, so I will use that as leverage when they're back in custody to say, are you interested in treatment right now? What can we do with that? Or sometimes it'll be, you are going to, we use a program called Bell Hill, which is a sober board and lodge in, in northern Minnesota. And I will say, you're going to go to Bell Hill or you're going to go to jail for six months. That's, it's your choice. You know, well, I don't have a choice. You have a choice. You have two two choices you don't like, but you still have a choice. So if I were you, wink, wink, I would go to Bell Hill <laughs> where you can smoke and go to the movie and you can go to Walmart and you can do all this stuff, or you can go to jail and, and do your time. It, it, Bell Hill is not jail, but these are your options. Shane, you want to jump in here? Well, you listen to Ron uh, talk about, you know, before we started the 100 program, I didn't even know what probations did. I'll be honest with you. Um, we have a community probation officer that's out talking to businesses, residents, um, community. Um, what a hell of a resource to be able to check in with Ron every month in Heidi. Um, and you listen to Ron, he almost sounds like a life coach, not a probation officer. Um, and that's why it's so key to select in our program. It's not, we need a Ron. I don't want just a probation officer. We are breaking the traditional probation mold here. Um, and somebody brought up earlier, why probations? It costs so much to do this. And I, my, my question back was, why not? Let's change. I know that's how we've done it in the past here in Minnesota. Let's change that. And that was a heavy lift. That was a hard sell to sell to probations to do something like Ron's position. Matter of fact, I don't even think that's a provision. He just floats Ron around <laughs> into some department and all you do is deal with our chronic offenders and work with our team. Um, but I can tell you, as a business partner, I have valued our relationship so as the community because we can have dialogue and conversations with Ron. And Ron is not the only voice at the table. There's other voices too, which is, I think, a healthy dialogue um, to have. And Heidi, do you have, do you back him up? I mean, what, what's your relationship there? Do you, do you monitor these cases as well? Or is that completely up to him? No, we absolutely monitor yeah. the cases because we're the ones that have to make the arguments to the judge. But it's also an interesting dynamic with probation because we will have had our case conference or our weekly meeting and we will all have a plan. Like this is the plan we have for Shane's on today. And then we'll go to court and Ron will meet with the defense attorney and he'll come back and say, we've got a new plan and we will support him. Um, we will change the plan based on where an individual is at an individual time. 
because we trust that this Ron is bringing the individual's best interest. So there is a lot in criminal justice. I mean, prosecution has a clear defined, a clearly defined role. It is my job to enforce the law, but with that, I have some leeway. Uh, the reality is if you get someone that has 10 misdemeanor offenses, I'm not gonna convict them of all 10. I'm not gonna have the time and resources to do 10 misdemeanor trials on 10 individual trespassing offenses. So we're likely to plea one, two, three out and dismiss a bunch. But we can use that as a negotiation tool to, or you can work Ron's plan. Do you wanna work Ron's plan? Then maybe I'll dismiss an extra one. Um, I am limited in certain regards. I have to comply with the Minnesota Crime Victims Rights Statute. I have to seek restitution when it's appropriate. I'll be honest to everyone in this room, there are times where we get a restitution order and I know that they're never gonna be able to pay it, but it's just complying with the statute so at least I can get the order. But it's, it's that team approach and it's that willingness. I think part of it is honestly not being so dogmatic. Not going into court and saying, Ron, you said we were gonna put this person in jail for 90 days and now all of a sudden we're sending them off to treatment again. He will have a reason and I will listen to that reason and I can change course based on probation's input. Let's talk about response. I wanna ask Chief Jose about this. I know there are business owners who say we don't even bother reporting shoplifts anymore because uh, it's not gonna be prosecuted. So uh, in, in Minneapolis, business owner notices somebody who on a regular basis is uh, they've, been, they've been trespassed once, they've been trespassed twice, but they're still going into the store and taking stuff out and you know laughing all the way. Uh, how do you respond to that? How does the police department respond to that? Well, what I mean, so this is, that's probably beyond just this program because this program is more tied to individuals themselves, but uh, the cops still do their job. And that means if uh, they respond and somebody has committed a crime that is an arrestable offense, they're gonna take them to jail. Uh, and and uh, misdemeanor offenses, they will cite unless there is some reason that uh, citation is not uh, the appropriate uh, response, which that can be frustrating enough, but in Minnesota we have a statute that says you, for misdemeanors you must cite, uh, and only for exceptions can you arrest. So that's gonna be the first step. So uh, with regard to that situation where we have frustrated uh, business owners that are saying the same person's back out, it's just as frustrating for the officers uh, that are arriving on those calls, but we support continuing to do the standard job. You have to do that uh, no matter what. And if that means taking people to jail one day at a time uh, or citing them, uh, even if you know that uh, the citation may never uh, uh, provide the outcome that we all would like to see. The cops, first and foremost, have to do their job. And, uh, you know, we, we do interact pretty closely with our business community, so we have a lot of these types of meetings where we get people in a room, and I appreciate the fact that no one's yelled at us yet. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, sometimes we have to deal with uh, some upset citizens, and, and I never blame a citizen for yelling at uh, me uh, when we come into a, a meeting where people are upset about something because uh, life can be frustrating and uh, it's frustrating for all sides of that equation and uh, just as frustrating for our officers. 
but at least with this program that we're talking about where we actually have identified individuals that, that we know are chronic offenders, uh, we have other opportunities to deal with that situation beyond the basic citation or basic arrest that the person, you know, I've for years, and, and myself, I've been uh, with the department for 31 years, uh, you know, even when I came on, there were times you arrested somebody that before you got done with the paperwork, they were out of the jail and heading back to where they were at. Uh, so that's not something that's new. Uh, that's That's been around forever. And, uh, you know, uh, as officers, we come up with creative ways to uh, uh, kind of make the job uh, or the, the arrest process or whatever it is with the individual uh, just annoying enough that they hopefully don't want to go back and commit the same crime they were just doing, but uh, we have to do it within the, the bounds of uh, um, respectfulness and treating everyone uh, uh, you know, the way you would want to be treated. And, uh, but we, we all deal with that frustration that uh, uh, officers alike. Okay, I wanna, I'm curious to find out how you dealt with the kind of situation we have here now. And one of the reasons we have such high attendance here is because people feel that their concerns are not being addressed. Now, before you started your program nine years ago, were you guys having meetings like this? I mean, did you have business associations saying, look, we're fed up, you have got to do something. Uh, we don't know what it is, but it's your job to do it. Okay, go ahead. Uh, I'll Shame. say, we still do. Uh, we still do. I mean, you probably saw us on the media on a rash of robberies that we've had. Our violent crime is up 18%. Um, I don't want to pretend this is a one-size-fix-all solution. It is a consistent solution that's been working for us to have strategy partners at the table that meet on a frequent <coughs> basis, but we still have frustrated businesses. We had the chief come out and talk to, to city council that we had over 6,000 priority one calls this year that haven't been responded to in an appropriate amount of time. 6,000 calls citywide. Um, those service outputs are alarming to us. When, and that's a priority one call. That's not a shoplifting call. I'm sorry, a shoplifting call is a low priority call. Um, so what do we want our service outcomes? And I, quite frankly, the police department, especially Seattle Police Department, I've seen them out, fantastic job. But we have to understand what resources do we really need for those meaningful resolution or outcomes that we want out of our service. If I called 911 and said my house was on fire and expect the fire truck to show up an hour later, that's unacceptable. Um, we should be thinking about how do we support our police services in a meaningful resolution, especially for priority calls or definitely community impact calls. Um, don't get me on my soapbox on, on this because businesses are frustrated downtown too. With just because you have this program doesn't mean that I'm gonna make you all happy here. Um, in matter of fact, a lot of you are gonna walk out of this and go, what the hell is Minneapolis even talking about? We're doing half of this stuff they're even talking about right now. I don't disagree, but we are doing some things that are pretty innovative and the proudest thing that I can talk to you right now is our strong public and private collaboration efforts that happen each day, not once a month, not once a year, every day. So Joseph, as somebody who, um Okay, you say your arms weren't really crossed, but you were representing people who were a little worried about this collaboration in the beginning. What was it that turned people around? Just familiarity or? Um, turned clients around? No, tur turn, turn people who were worried that the police were um, going about it the wrong way. Well, uh, I've said this earlier today, change happens at the speed of trust. 
You know, and that, that's what you learn from How our did they industry. establish that trust, though? Uh, well, through uh, weekly meetings. Um, Showing par up. Partnerships, yes. Uh, working through uh, challenging situations together and coming out at the, you know, other end and we're still sitting in the room together. Um, and then also uh, when our clients can see the benefits of that on the streets as well. So prior to the downtown, you asked about like prior to uh, the downtown 100 um, or clients that weren't involved in this, uh, this client focused group, um, outreach workers, social workers had a very difficult time connecting with probation officers, uh, public defenders, uh, prosecution. Um, just having them cycle through community court. And it's the benefit of having all of us working together where, you know, I could call, you know, recently uh, I was at a meeting with Ron and he had a client. Um, we kind of know this guy's MO. And I was able to call, uh, Ron was looking for him and this, this gentleman was not in a good space. You know, and if I would have called any other probation officer, I guarantee you that person would have been violated. But I was just, you know, because of the trusting relationship, it's so like to say, Ron, hey, he's not in a good space. He doesn't have a phone. My team's going to connect with him in the morning. We'll give you a call then, you know. But he also said at one point you actually recommended somebody be locked up. Well, several uh, of our programs have, and a lot of that has to do with uh, that person's well-being. You know, uh, you know we're, we're, prior to coordinated entry uh, 2015, we saw a big switch. Our outreach programs used to before 2015 and coordinated entry and the VI sped at and all that. We had, you know, options to house people literally from a doorway. Um, now we have to go through the county. Um, but yeah, so back, back to your, your, your point. Your question. Well, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to improve the atmosphere. I think yeah. there's a general feeling that in Seattle, it's we're divided into camps and we don't get together and figure out what actually works. Uh, you guys seem to have uh, achieved that. Well, I understand you haven't solved every single we problem. We haven't solved every single problem, but like Shane brought up, you know, the public-private partnership outreach workers, we work within the margins, you know. So, uh, you know, there's been times where we've pulled in key business stakeholders who were very, very concerned for people that were, you know, sleeping in their doorway, getting mm -hmm. assaulted in their doorway. Uh, other homeless folks have been great um, collateral information and we try to find this link in the chain within the, their healthcare system or if it's in the legal community to bring unlikely people together to advocate for somebody. And do you have a facility for every different need? He was mentioning, a, you know, there's this, this place up north where you can get and you have a detox place, and you have this and that. Well, well recently, um, in the last three years, it took us uh, well, took us three years. We got federal funding to uh, renovate our detox facility. So prior to this renovation, if I was to go to detox, I'd be in an orange jumpsuit, just like jail, um, sit on a metal bench and kind of wait to get in. Um, it was very similar to jail, just the environment. And it's run by a Native American um, organization. and. A majority of the folks that are within our detox facility are Native Americans because they face discrimination and um, really uh, like some very, there's a lot of racial tension within some of our larger uh, uh, shelter systems. So they do not like to go there. They'll stay outside, couch hop, or go to detox, right? So they, I mean, just the, the design of the place, they brought in um, kind of Native American, uh, you know, art, uh, got their voice, like, what would you like to see here? So, um, for one, that was the key thing, and then they layered the services over there, so we still have a detox facility, 
It, there are people who are too drunk to go to detox, so they end up going to our hospital. But then we also have kind of a sobering center because uh, we get very, very cold weather in, uh, in Minnesota. Every time I come out here, it's 75 and sunny, so I, I don't <laughs> believe you guys when you talk about rain. Um, uh, but we used to have people that would, you know, through engagement, they want to sober up or they want to reduce their drinking through harm reduction. But they will drink Listerine or mouthwash or vodka, you know, um, to get into detox for a bed. We no we took that barrier away. People could just walk in and say, "Hey, I'd like you know like to stay." So here. nobody is is turned away. You always well, have a place for someone to go. Well, they're turned away if it's filled up. But then we also have um, a couple other detox facilities: one south of the city, one's west of the city, and uh, we have a pretty good we have pretty good communication with them, like outreach programs before we go out on the streets, like at the beginning of the month when people you know, generally get their general assistance or welfare benefits. Um, we like to call and say, hey, how many beds do you have for males or females? So we kind of have that in our toolbox before we even go, go out on the streets. So if we're working with somebody and they, um, and they would like to go to detox, we could provide that as an option for them. Shane. Real quickly, think about our strategy meeting. If, if we had all you right here, each one of you probably have a resource. Our job as a strategy team is not to be the sole resource. Our job is to connect the dots where the resources are. So whether it's detox or social service interventions, I guarantee out of this whole room, if we had Joseph, our chronic offender here, we could figure something out between all of us, right? And I might not have to bring the resource to the table. I just gotta find where the resource is, so does Heidi. That's a part of our collective strategy meetings to make sure, and if the resource isn't at the table, let's go find it. We just did a great example, <laughs> just last month, we had healthcare for the homelessness um, that go provide field-based healthcare out in the field. I'm like, why ain't we doing that? Um, so they said we could go out every Thursday. Now they're going out with Joseph's team and St. Stephen's team to provide street-level healthcare. Um, that's a big deal. That's a resource dot that we connected. So a part of the strategy is not to be just the resource, I, I'm, I'm a business improvement district. I, I, I bring ambassadors to the table. Um, I need to collectively figure out where the resources are in my community and connect the dots. I'd, okay. I'd like Go to ahead. comment on that too, after Heidi. Oh. The other thing that I really wanted to say is we are constantly strategizing about what our deliverables are to the community as well. So it's not just the annual recidivism numbers and the annual referrals to programming, but it's constantly looking at the partners at the table. When we designed the program nine years ago, we didn't go to district court and ask permission. We built the court, we built the program and said, we'll bring it to the court and we'll follow the offenders around so that the judges we don't have to get their buy-in. We will do this representation. But we also value district court as a partner. And we are living in an environment right now where everyone wants to reduce bench warrants. So we work as a team to constantly reduce. If Ron has someone that's out on a bench warrant status, we are doing everything we can to find them. And when we find them, we will call district court and say, can we quash this warrant? We'll get this person in voluntarily. We have built up that resource to other outreach workers, so even if it's not a downtown 100 offender, I will field calls from St. Stephen Street Outreach or other agencies that are like, Heidi, I have a client that's got a bench warrant. Can you help me? Yes, and that in turn helps district court because we're reducing our warrant. That helps Minneapolis Police Department because they're not out searching for this person on a warrant. 
So we are constantly looking at what our deliverables are so that we can be a resource to bring out these resources and to benefit our partners as well. And that is something that we've been working on for nine years. So it's not just reduction in recidivism, it's system-wide, how can we be the tools to help out? Now, didn't I hear one of you say when we were having dinner the other night that despite the uh, dramatic reduction in recidivism, you still have to go begging for funding? No, I think, I think DID's commitment and investment to the dedicated prosecutor, uh, the city attorney and probation is there. I mean, but you know, it's, it's year after year, we have to, we have ratepayers that we have to sell this concept to and we need results from it. Um, we, we do bring other providers in, uh, but we don't pay for them. They're, they already are set up in our community and we just bring them to the table. Um, you can always buy down risk or, or, or do more with, with money, I guess. Um, but we're doing what we have been doing for the last nine years and it's been working. Oh, I, I was going to say, uh, pretty much any nonprofit's always looking for flexible <laughs> yeah, dollars. Right? Uh, I, I, I co-chair the Ending Street Homeless Committee, and that's and my my other co-chair is a, a partner of a law firm down downtown. It's a volunteer group, and last year we immediately raised about a hundred thousand dollars, which we uh, distributed out to four different outreach programs or homeless uh, uh, programs, so they could have flexible dollars. You know, so if someone was. You know, working with St. Stephen's, they had a downtown 100 client, and the you know the the person person needed shoes or, or you know needed a double deposit or something like that. They could they could have that uh, that yeah. the funds to do that. So. Okay, we're going to uh, open up to questions in a few minutes. We'll have roving microphones, but I now before we get to that part, I want to um, ask you for something I know you don't want to do, but I'm going to ask you anyway. You've, uh, you've been here on this, this little uh, visit for a few days. You've gotten out, you've, you've met some people. We took a walking tour the other day, walked around, you asked some questions. So what are your perceptions of Seattle in terms of what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong? And as you walk around Pioneer Square today and you, you know, walk down the uh, drug alley along Third Avenue. We got the same thing. What, what were your impressions? Are we really messed up, or does it look a lot like Minneapolis, or what? I'll start. Wow, uh, beautiful city. I, I am amazed. Um, I, I'm coming. Like I said, I'm coming back with my family. Um, you have a lot of things going on here. I think a lot of cities, just like Minneapolis, um, you're growing at a rate that is unbelievable. You have over 82,000 residents in your downtown area. We have roughly about 40,000. You have over 300,000 employee bases down here and growing. Wow, your transportation density, booming. Um, with that, with that density and all the visitors that you have coming, there's challenges. I mean, there's no doubt about it. We have the same challenges. Um, what I can tell you that you're doing really well is you, you are doing some pretty amazing stuff on safety. And I know it always doesn't feel like that. It's easy to point the finger at things that are wrong. It's harder to collectively come together and say, what can we do to address some of the challenges that we're having. And this isn't the only initiative that we're doing in Minneapolis. We have a lot of them, um, and so do you. Um, I would love to learn what more. We're actually visiting with your LEAD uh, program, and it's probably similar to what we're doing here a little bit. Um, but there's probably some little differences. And that's what we're hoping to, for, to learn from the LEAD program is, I guarantee there's some little differences that we may be able to steal from you. Because um, trust me, I'm taking notes on a lot of things that I'm seeing, like 
your rideshare areas, um, your ambassadors out there. I can't believe how many people you have out on the streets. We have nine miles of Skyway. You have people out everywhere. Um, so I really, like I said, one of the things I'm hoping to get out of this visit also is a collective city. Um, it's not just about Minneapolis. Collectively, let's share ideas, what we're doing, and maybe that one idea will help us be a better city, or maybe our idea will help you be a better city. Anybody else want to comment? Anybody else? Yes. Can I force you to comment? Okay, good. <laughs> Absolutely. So it, I agree with Shane. Uh, I'm amazed at the city just walking around. And But I will say this. Um, one block can be quite a bit different than the previous block. And uh, we were walking around last night and today and uh, because everybody always says, it's, oh, it's just a few blocks down and it's not. There's always a hill. Ten minute walk. Yeah, right? yeah, ten minute walk and turns into a half hour. But uh, the, uh, I was amazed when we turned onto Third Avenue uh, and we're walking down Third that and we had been on some other streets and all over down by the sh uh, shoreline and stuff. And um, there's some open air drug dealing going on that is, uh, I, don't, I don't see that same level uh, in Minneapolis, uh, that openness where they weren't trying to hide it at all. I mean, it was just open. And then, you know, walking back to our hotel last night, we came across people shooting up, just standing right on the sidewalk in front of you. So, there's some areas for improvement. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that. We, we actually have a, the same thing. But, but overall, I've been extremely impressed with the city, uh, you know, and those are people that need help, uh, you know, and so, but uh, no, Will, I, I, I agree with Shane. I called my wife and said, we're coming back here for a vacation because uh, your, your city has a lot to offer. Um, but I, if, you, if I have one moment to comment on something yes. else. Um, so these meetings that have been taking place weekly for the last 10 years, they take place inside the police station. That's true. They're not in some, you know, government building somewhere hidden somewhere. They're in the front community room in the fourth or the first precinct. And um, if you would have gone probably nine years back, and an officer's out dealing with uh, an intoxicated person, or maybe someone's got a mental issue taking place and you had social workers show up on your call and uh, maybe um, uh, probation or even, you know, even probation, I can tell you our officers would say, uh, you go stand on the curb over there uh, until I'm done with what I'm dealing with and when I'm done you can decide what you're going to do. And someone like Joseph would show up and he goes, he could say something like, but I know Jose. And uh, you know, and they'd be like, so what? You know, but eventually um, after 10 years of meeting in our front yeah. uh, community room in the, the precinct that serves our downtown, all the cops know all these people. So when uh, some of our people that are involved in this show up on their calls, and they all, we all have a common radio channel. We can all talk to each other. We can flip over to a common radio channel, and an officer can talk to a social worker and say, I maybe need some help over here with this person. Or they're just listening, and they just show up on your call, and someone like uh, from the outreach team will say, you know, we can take care of this person. We can uh, give this person some, you know, medical assistance. We know their doctor. I mean, I'd even say we know what their doctor, what their medicine they're they're not taking, what what it is, and we can. And for an officer to just go, oh, okay, well here you go, and uh, 
you know, so that, that has evolved over time because I can tell you our officers normally wouldn't like some social worker come up and knock on the window and they're sitting talking to somebody that's maybe not making a lot of sense. And that trust is there now between those officers that work downtown and all of our different outreach groups that show up. There's this bond because they're like, oh, I see at the precinct, you know, you're there every week or, you know, and they're not just there on Wednesdays. I mean, those guys are in and out of the precinct all the time. They just have a formal meeting that one day a week. So for uh, the first probably two to three years of my role, I was actually officed out of the uh, first precinct. I had a I had an office there. I I spent a lot of time bouncing back and forth. It's about a half mile maybe from the government center where court was at. So I had two offices. I had an office area or a cube at the precinct, and I had an office at the government center. Um, and I was bouncing uh, back and forth uh, all the time. I just kind of segued out of that. I think when I first got to the precinct, you guys had like dial-up internet. It was horrible. I couldn't get, I, I had to bring my own, uh, my own printer down there. And so it was just so much easier for me to be, uh, you know, get all my technical stuff done at the, at the government center that I kind of, or in my office at the jail. Um, I segued down there. I do, I do try to spend as much time as I can at the precinct. Sometimes it's, even if I just stop in, um, I happened to stop in a day last week and they were doing lunch because some folks were leaving or whatever. But it, again, we've talked about it uh, and I've talked about it a lot. Uh, uh, the relationship with uh, um, the people that we work with, you know, the officers know me, they know the other folks. Um, I'm one of the guys that, you know, if I'm out and about walking around, and especially downtown, if I see a squad that I know that there's something going on and they've got somebody in the car, I always walk up and talk to the officers and look in the window, and 99% of the time I know who that is, um, or it's one of my clients. Um, and I think they give me the respect to, to do that, um, and I'm not going to interfere with them, but um, it's just knowing, you know, for me, it's knowing the officers um, and the other folks, the outreach workers that we work with. Joseph? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, to echo uh, uh, Chief Jose, um, you know, when I go to different cities, I like to go out and talk with the folks that, you know, either look like they're experiencing homelessness or I'll like visit a shelter or something like that. And I've had the opportunity over the last couple of days to literally talk to people on the streets. Um, and they did discuss outreach with me. Um, they did discuss uh, some services that were working and then, you know, I'm going to bed at night and my antenna's always up and I found out that um, there was a shelter that shut down and then Salvation Army stepped in. And then today we were with Seattle Sun-Times. I step outside and I see where Amazon is um, developing a family shelter. So there's like numerous things that you folks are doing. I think, you know, in Minneapolis, and I live right across the river in St. Paul, and I talk with a lot of the programs there, and I talk with the businesses there, and I think a lot of times when we're stuck in the day-to-day -day of walking one block of, you know, peace and, uh, you know, everything's tranquil and it's vibrant, and then you go two doors down and, you know, you have somebody who's stuck in their addiction, um, I think we can all suffer from terminal uniqueness at times, right? Um, so I am very impressed by the turnout here for a public safety meeting. Um, you know, we have meetings where we go out in public and they're generally not this large. I mean, it could be like a neighborhood group, but 
just the fact that you guys are having the courage to sit down and have this conversation. It's a national conversation. You guys are taking a look at other initiatives that you know maybe some of you guys agree with, either philosophically or with the approach, and maybe some of you don't, but at least you have the courage to listen. You know, and I think that's that's very impressive what, what Seattle's doing. One more thing before we get to questions. Uh, for any of you during your time here, and especially you, Ron, was there anything you saw and you said to yourself, wow, if this, is, if this was Minneapolis, here's what I'd do about that? Whether it was people shooting up outside the hotel or somebody acting out on a street corner, have you seen anything during your visit where you looked around and you said, now this, either this would not happen in Minneapolis or if this was happening on my beat, here's what I would be doing about that that isn't being done right now. Uh, I'm not trying to dodge the question. No, not, not really. I guess maybe that's... Uh, um, I mean, obviously, I, when we walk, uh, we see a very small part of the city. We, you know, um, I mostly just try to take it in. Uh, I, I was asking somebody earlier, um, you know, directionally, where's the, where do I see people on the way in? I came in on Friday, and on the way in, I saw a bunch of tents kind of along the freeway. So I want to know where where that is. We deal with the same, the same stuff. Does that go? Wow, that must be your phone. That's the timer. <laughs> All right, someone, someone didn't want you to say that. <laughs> no, go ahead. like they're experiencing homelessness. They may be panhandling, uh, maybe intoxicated uh, to some degree. I'd like to check in with them and see, you know, where are they at today? You know, do they need, you know, I come from a really client-centered approach. Is it, you know, do you want to go to detox? Are you safe? Do you have a clean kit? You know, like a, a heroin kit? Do you have your resources that you need? Sometimes it's just checking in and just having, we're not talking about resources at all. And it's just, you know, Realizing it's a privilege to be in that person's space, for one, um, and just having that dialogue and acknowledge that person. There are other things that we have in the city. Shane might chime in on this, but um, our, our, we have uh, the Radio Link channel, which is connected to uh, what, 85 different security uh, assets. But then we also get out and provide our information, our phone number, to the business community and folks uh, uh, that live and work and visit downtown. So we, it's like a force multiplier. We're able to, um, uh, you know, get calls from community members for services. There are a few people that, you know, that I saw that I'd, I'd probably call another outreach program to say, hey, have you checked in with these folks lately? But, you know, the bottom line is showing up and finding out, you know, what those folks need. Okay. Did you want to say something, Shane? Yeah, one thing I want to add that, that I, I was mind-boggled by Senior City was your residential growth, your employee growth, your visitor growth, your transportation growth. Not to put you on the spot, Chelsea, I ask you what your police department numbers were roughly at 100 uh, for your downtown. I actually asked one of your commanders or your lieutenants. It was roughly at 100, which is equal to us downtown with what, about 40,000 residents. And we're trying to get more cops. But my question is, what were your numbers 10 years ago? And with this rapid growth for police services, like, 
how is that, how is that not growing? Like that, that's the same challenge we have, and I get it, I get it. Um, so um, it's a challenge that a lot of cities face here. But when you have all this growth in all these different directions, other services should be growing with that density. Um, and we face, I'm not pointing the finger because I'm pointing it back at me too, because Minneapolis, our downtown, is in the same boat, and our chief has asked for 400 more cops. And I don't think we, you, you really have to think about the service goals that you want, or the, the service resolutions that you want to get out of um, for those outputs, but I do think there's gotta be a better calculation for police services for your downtown core, because it's not like any other community we have two major stadiums over here that pull in. I, I can't even imagine a Seahawk game, like what it looks like for the density and the people that come down here. So I truly think that there's gotta be more dialogue in supporting police services to the keep up with your city's growth. And I, I wish, once you figure that out, call me, because I would love to <laughs> steal the idea from you, because we're, we're in desperate need too for that. Okay, if you have a question, raise your hand. We have uh, roving mics who will come around. If I see some over there. See one right back there. <coughs> yes. My name is Ty Myers. I'm a business owner in the area for the better part of 21 years. Um, and I appreciate all you guys, and I really believe that you're all doing a good job in, in the city of Minneapolis's problem. This doesn't really identify Seattle's problem. Uh, and it, it kind of smoke screens what Seattle's actually going through. We have lost a bunch of our officers. A bunch of them have quit because of policy created by the city council. City council's desperately trying to rehire officers by giving them a $15,000 bonus. They're still not coming because of the policy that was created. We're short cops. We have some of the best law enforcement here that is being restricted on the job it can and can't do. We've tried nice. Here's what nice looks like. We've been nice to criminals. We've been nice to people that we probably shouldn't have been nice to. We've done that for now seven years. This is what it's gotten us. It is now time to give the law enforcement back the stick. And that's just, that's just it. We're, we're, we're city of Seattle, two and a half percent unemployment with this massive homeless problem. It makes no sense. City of Seattle has invited this homeless problem here. The homeless calls City of Seattle Freeattle. Matter of fact, all other kind of districts and counties and states will send us their homeless in droves. We are not managing this correctly. This is not a homeless problem. This is not a problem of that scope. This is a management problem. Okay, let's talk about this because you had, we talked about this during dinner last night as well, whether the services you offer have attracted others because you promised that there is a place for everyone who has a, who is, got, needs therapy of some kind. Have you then drawn other people to Minneapolis no, because of that? I, I don't want to make no mistake. We're not resource rich. Um, we, we, we are lacking affordable housing. We're lacking a lot of these complicated issues. Um, I, I, I hear you, I, I do, and I don't want to underplay um, why we're here. Um, I, I'm still shocked that we are here, actually, um, but I'm glad that we're having this dialogue because um, I'm learning a lot, too, while I'm here, um, and I'm going to be taking back a lot of stuff to our city and, and probably pivoting on some stuff, um, especially um, the police resources piece of it. We're, we, we definitely have to advocate for both recruitment, retention, 
but also the actual numbers that are needed to do the job. And to your point, yes, we have some challenges where I think we have officers that are, are confused on what to do and when to do it. Um, and that's not healthy either. Um, and I wish I had a better answer for you, uh, but what I can tell you if we collectively work and talk at other major cities are talking about these issues and these dialogues, maybe we can move the needle. Yeah. Probably not fast enough, but maybe we can move the needle. I, th I think, you know, uh, each community needs to define what livability means to them. You know, we, we, we're dealing with the same issue with, uh, you know, our city council and our in policy decisions that have been made where law enforcement, they just don't have the tools to do their job. You know, I mean, net, like actually worldwide uh, because of, uh, you know, anti police rhetoric, I mean, and just the tensions of the job, you have law enforcement committed suicide at a very high rate, right? But when we're talking about, you know, you brought up the homeless population management, I love that. It's a, a management issue. Uh, the former director of our office, to, or our Minnesota Council of Nonprofits would often say, you know, homelessness is a math problem, you know? Um, we deal with, when you're talking about people coming from other, other states, we got a lot of folks from Chicago, and uh, I have to find out why. You know, I can look at the news, but you know, the deeper dive into like marginalization, uh, extreme disinvestment, and we have that within our community on the north side of Minneapolis. It's a predominantly African-American community. It, historic redlining um, and just significant disinvestment in that area. Um, so we take a look at all those drivers. And then even greater Minnesota, you know, Greater Minnesota, uh, they do not have the services that we have in Hennepin and in our adjacent Ramsey County. So oftentimes we have to communicate with them. I mean, if someone comes up and gets housing from, you know, they're fleeing a domestic situation, they're prioritized, they might have disabilities, and then they tell a friend or they call back to their caseworker in Cook County in Chicago and say, I got in in a week, you know, then we have to kind of... Uh, you know, reach out and have that conversation that this was a special case and blah, blah, blah. So we're not sending people up, you know, to sit in our shelter system or sit in our doorway because it's about reaching out and explaining the realities. When we have, you know, 160 people on an unsheltered list or 675 people on our unsheltered list across the, uh, the city, um, people are prioritized. And then with coordinated entry, that's another thing. So it's, you know, explaining the, the um, you know, the services and the service system for folks to, you know, try to reduce the uh, movement of folks into our community. Who's next? Uh, Only easy questions, sorry. We're not gonna answer any hard ones. Um, thank you, my name is Jeremy. I manage a local business down in Soto. So my question to, I'm not sure who would want to field this question, but my question to you is, Um, these people on the board idea. Well, we have a council members actively undercutting some of the programs that actually do work. Mm -hmm. so what What do you guys do? How did you did you have a city council member that you worked with, maybe cross their arms or maybe release funding or city council members that were actively working against you? And what how did you guys deal with that? So. Throughout the nine years of the program, we've been through different iterations of city council. So it's important to note that our city council has changed hands. People that may have been pro our program have, it's an ebb and flow. Um, the reality for me, so just to kind of everyone in this room is aware, 
My city attorney is not an elected official. My city attorney is appointed by the mayor and has to seek approval of the city council. So the mayor makes an appointment. I appoint uh, our current city attorney is Susan Siegel. She gets appointed by the mayor and then gets approved by city council. So I have to enforce policies that are approved by the city attorney. So as long as I have city attorney support my position in support of the downtown 100 goes. So it does flow up to elected. The city council members are elected. The mayor is elected, but my boss is ultimately appointed. So yes, we have had changes in our council. We have had council members that are less supportive, that are more hostile to police that are more hostile to certain ideals, but we've just kept, as long as we have the functional support to keep going, we just keep delivering on our deliverables. Um, the slide that was up before is our city attorney's favorite slide on the downtown 100 because the thing that it shows and what we come back to all of the time is we don't just track the cohort for one year, we continue to track them so that I can tell you what our 2010 cohort is up to in 2018. It's hard to see in a condensed slide, and I think we'll pull out some of the old years, but you'll notice it's a downward trend, so even if there's a spike up, we're tracking that 2010 cohort even now, so it's not just a one-year window of time, and that's what we're constantly delivering out. And then real quick to your point, our, our livability program, we primarily focus in on the homeless population, but we do public health and public safety. And Shane and uh, our, our community engage, or Alan, uh, crime prevention specialists, we'll go out to businesses and do trainings and provide people with information. And we're just as resourceful with the business community as we are with you know visitors and people experiencing homelessness. And we kind of take a look at the tier, like where's this where's this business owner at? They're doing they're making all the phone calls to RadioLink. They're calling 911 when they're concerned for somebody or there was a crime. Uh, but then we, we've also recently been in, uh, suggesting that they call their city council member and ask for some help. You know, so now city council members are hearing from a very diverse group of folks, business stakeholders that have been downtown for 20 plus years or, or even new businesses. Um, and that's kind of changed their tune a little bit. Uh, elected officials like to get elected. Um, so when they're hearing from, uh, you know, the, their constituents or the stakeholders within their ward, um, sometimes, it, uh, sometimes it changes them pretty dramatically, other times they're at least open to having a different conversation around um, uh, policing and you know, public health. Who's next? how familiar you guys are with the LEAD program that we have going on here. From what I've read about it, it's been very successful at, at reducing recidivism. Do you think for something like this, our funds would better be appropriated towards supporting case management for that program and going maybe more towards slightly less punitive measures and more diversion into mental health and addiction remediation programs? We're, we're meeting with LEAD tomorrow. Um, okay. I, I don't want to give you input on initiatives that you are doing, whether they're successful or not. What I will give you as advice is if you build public-private collaboration efforts and you're bringing the community in like we are with our initiative, 
I think that's the difference a little bit, and maybe it's not, because I haven't learned, I've heard a lot of great things about LEAD. Um, but the repetition of, of us meeting at the police department with community, with, uh, with uh, social service outreach, I think that's the unique difference a little bit here. And then dedicated probation city attorney that's focused on not more the back end, but the front end from the year past year history of chronic offenders um, and the community meetings monthly. So that, that, it, that public private collaboration effort is a level that I think that Minneapolis does well and maybe LEAD does too. Um, so that's why I'm hoping to learn a little bit about what your LEAD program does. Um, and then there's, you know, again, there's a, probably a lot of similarities to our program and LEAD maybe, and maybe there isn't. There's some things that are, we're, we're doing a little bit differently or um, you're doing differently that we could learn from. But I, you know, I, I don't to know. To the back end of that question though, like I said, we are meeting with LEAD tomorrow and I'm very excited to hear about the program. But the second part of your question dealt with a piece of the puzzle that sometimes gets lost in the traveling roadshow of bringing a program. The reality as a prosecution-based program is that we do have cases that end in jails, that end in 365 days in the workhouse or 180 days in the workhouse and telesis, which is our treatment program at the workhouse. When we are confronted with people that are not amenable to working with Ron, that are not cooperative with any level of social service or engagement, then it's time for the criminal justice system to evaluate the case as a criminal justice case. And it is, I think it's part of the program that sometimes people are going to end up going to jail. None of us come to the table to put anyone in jail. In fact, we know how expensive jail is as a resource. But to address the frustration and concern, I can't constantly keep people out in the community to see, experience the same results. At some level, as a prosecutor, I am accountable and I do have to say, all right, we've reached this point and now my position is going to be full revocation or an executed sentence. That, that's just our experience. Um, the other thing I wanna say about that is you know, there is a scale. I mean, I live in a 1950s Rambler, but I still live within the city limit of Minneapolis. Um, you guys could walk from my house to the government center and be surrounded by skyscrapers just from the size and scale of your downtown area. So this is, I just point that out, like there are clear differences and I am well aware of them, but there is a reality through our program that sometimes it ends in a punitive sanction. Could you uh, just briefly explain the workhouse? Do people actually crack rocks there, or what's the workhouse? <laughs> no, no, our criminal justice system in Minnesota is set up in a way, anyone that's sentenced to over 365 days, so a year and a day is a felony sentence, that is going to be the sole purview of our prison. Um, anyone that's sentenced to under 365 days will serve it at our workhouse, which is a facility in Plymouth. It is not our, like I don't, we use the workhouse to differentiate the jail. So if I go out downtown Minneapolis tonight and get arrested for an assault, I go to the jail, which is downtown Minneapolis. It's where I'll be processed, I'll go to court. Um, if I get sentenced, then I go out to the workhouse, which is a separate facility. But that's just its name. That's just You're, its name. I mean, okay. the work, it does have the, it's not, there's no forced labor. But it does have... Um, it's, it's the Adult Corrections Facility, yeah. okay. ACF, but it's yeah. actually run by the probation department. So, 
it is just it, it has uh, some change differences from a full prison sentence it you have work release you can get out and go to your work and get back oh, and dear. get back into jail for the evenings and things like that not for everybody but for, for certain clients and I just want to clear that. Okay, I think uh, that's where it got the name Workhouse, yeah. is because oh, you can get work right. release to go to your job, and you had so much time to get back to your jail cell. Right. Okay, sir. Hello, my name is Ali, and I own Cherry Street Coffee House down here. Um, first, thank you for being here, and um, I just want to share something. You guys talking about reinventing. That's what you guys have done, and it took you 10 years to realize where you are. So this reinventing is what I thought I have to do as a small business person to stay in business. Otherwise, I'm going to be going out of business with the Uber Eats and Amazon and everybody else. If we don't reinvent, we're not going to be around. But one of the things is I love to be in this community. I love to serve this community. That is the reason I'm excited to come to work. Now, I want to make sure our officers are excited to come to work. I want to make sure our social services is, and government and you know, city official. The only way to do that and be part of the solution as we walk out this door, as the community, we have to ask ourselves, how are we reinventing ourselves? Are we smiling more? Are we saying good morning? When I look at our officer, can I look at their eyes and say good morning? I hope you have a great day. We have to ask ourselves, as the individual resident of this city, are we reinventing ourselves to be part of the solution of bringing more love to the community because that is the ticket to be able to make the changes for the long term. Thank you. Who's next? Over here. name's Angela Williams. I have a restaurant down here, been down here for 30 years, and I also live down here. So I have two questions. One is, this all started about nine or ten years ago, and eight years ago, Pioneer Square was not looking like it is now. In fact, Seattle did not look like it is now. Um, and I'm wondering what the springboard was that caused you to take a look at where you were as a city and what needed to be changed. Did it come from the business community? Did it come from the city government? Did it come from the prosecutor's office? Somebody had to be the driving force. And the second question, which I think is even more important, is that what you saw when you walked down with the open air um, shooting up and that, we all deal with every day, every day. We call the police and nothing happens. We go out and we ask them to stop. We call social services, and I'm told by the mid that they close at 3.30, that there's nothing that they can do. What would you do in your city in that situation? I'll start it. Um, it came from the business uh, uh, community. Downtown used to be called Murderapolis. Um, really, it did uh, 20 years ago. And we, we have some challenging areas, but... Uh, between the downtown council and the now DID, you know, there, there's business investment into DID over $7 million for the 120 square blocks for a cleaner, safer, greener downtown. So there's definitely not just our committed investment, we also want to see our, our state, our county, and our city um, 
collected investments and initiatives. So it is it is not to supplement baseline services. That's not what a, a business improvement district is set up or designed to do. It's an enhanced baseline services. And um, we still got a lot of work to do still. I, I'm not gonna say that we figured it out. Um, we still have to do, but we're collectively working together. And there's some pretty pissed off business owners this year as well, um, just like I'm hearing here, that are frustrated. Um, and it's, it's, it's sad even for me, because I, I, I want to say that I wish we could get things done faster, but I know sometimes it doesn't work like that. But to do something is better than doing nothing. And I think to your, your point about uh, like opioid use, we also have opioid use in Minneapolis. We had a large encampment that was on the national news, but we, uh, you know, drugs have a, a life cycle too. You know, you will have a crack epidemic and then, uh, you know, heroin and methamphetamines and it kind of goes up and down. Some of the things that we've been doing at the public level is Mayor Fry, um, in the last few months put together a, a opioid like a response committee uh, with you know experts from our Hennepin County Medical Center I believe there's someone on that group from the University of Minnesota but then uh, key uh, outreach and outreach partners um, licensed social workers who've worked around harm reduction uh, all coming together for like a collective response we have a community a Native American community that was greatly impacted by not only that encampment but the rise in heroin use and they went out and they've trained not only you know the uh, folks at the community centers, but people will put a purple ribbon on their door so people know that there's Narcan inside. So it, it's been like a very robust community response. And it came from, uh, there's some people in those communities that were like, I don't want any part of this, this is impacting me. But there were some that were very frustrated that wanted to be part of the solution. And, and to spread that love in the community like this gentleman was talking about. So it's been a very robust effort around uh, the, the heroin use in our community. But the disruption, I want to be real clear, the disruption of the open air drug market, even in Minneapolis, is so challenging. I mm. wish, it, I, and you think it would be much easier fix than what it is, because I think it's pretty simple. Um, I, I think open air drug markets should have a lot of enforcement on it to disrupt mm. the, the drug market. Um, but that's my opinion, it's yeah. not everybody's opinion. Sure. So I texted my wife before this meeting started and said, and I'll either be employed or not. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, she said, watch your mouth. She likes the checks. But uh, the, uh, so you have to learn over time. Um, and, uh, you know, I, law enforcement has been used for damn near everything that could possibly uh, exist. Anybody that would pick up the phone for 911. Um, Police have been used as the band-aid for almost everything. And if there's one thing we've proven in our, at least for us in our city, um, uh, we had, once computers came into play in the 90s, uh, and you start collecting data, and you start seeing where the 911 calls are, where the drug dealing's taking place, where the density is, um, we started piling police resources into those areas. And I mean piling, meaning it was focused uh, enforcement. And every year it went up, up, up. You're arresting more, you're citing more. Um, it's, you know, it's the drug war, it's whatever it is. It's whatever issue came up, 
Police are very, very good at their jobs. So if you come up with a tactic that you think is gonna resolve a problem, they will use that tactic to the nth degree and uh, they'll become very efficient at it. And, um, but over 30 years of collecting data on hotspots and, uh, and I'm just talking about Minneapolis, uh, you know, Seattle may have changed with all the building that's going on as far as what was a hotspot or what it is to where it is today. For us, major transit and uh, convenience stores are pretty likely to be your hotspots, but um, the, uh, uh, the, the solution wasn't just enforcement um, because I can put up a map from 1995 and I can put up a, a map from 2015 and the hotspots are in the same spots they were and you can put up an enforcement map, it's in the same spot. You can put up the um, economics map, maybe the, the low income housing or low income areas. All of the maps land exactly on top of each other, uh, no matter what uh, economic type dynamic or criminal issue or, um, and so, you know, very rarely has just enforcement moved that hotspot somewhere else because there's other elements that are drawing uh, people to that area that kind of it puts two people in contact at that location at that time, whether it's for a robbery or whether it's for a sale. Um, there's things that brought them there. So what we've tried to do is figure out what's, what's the attraction, um, why is this spot uh, you know, drawing that, that bad behavior, and then come up with ways to make it not, uh, not comfortable for the people that, and uh, you know, I joke with, the, there's lots of creative solutions. Uh, we had what was called an E-block downtown. It was an entertainment block that now is Mayo Clinic. Uh, but at the time it was thought we were gonna have a big entertainment area downtown in 600 block of Hennepin. And it turned into a mess really fast. And uh, lots and lots of problems. So what do you do? You just lock all the doors, you put everybody on the sidewalks and it didn't change a thing. and um, and all the business people were very upset. Lots and lots of money had been put into this entertainment district and no one wanted to come down there because the potential for being assaulted or just the observing behavior that no one wanted to observe or being accosted or whatever it was. And a tactic we came up with for around that building that cleared the problem out fairly quickly uh, was to play country music at a fairly <laughs> loud, uh, fairly loud uh, level. And uh, um, I, even I would get sick of it after a while. And I like country, but, uh, and, and, but I'm, the point being that in a very short period of time cleared up the streets around that, that building, the, whatever was taking place. So it's not always an enforcement uh, solution isn't always the right solution. Now, they don't still play country music there and the building has changed over. But the point being, we don't always have the answer for what is the right solution but I can tell you just massive enforcement really kind of divided us, the police and the community, when we're just enforcing, 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 and the problem isn't going away, and, uh, and the property values are dropping and everything else in that area. So um, you have to learn over time what's the right solution, um, but open drug dealing is not the right solution. And it, it it's, it's has to have enforcement aspect. You cannot have people openly drug dealing right in front of people. And I mean, that's, uh, I mean, I don't even want it hidden drug dealing, but I'm, uh, it's, 
you have to take enforcement action. And that's, you know, what is enforcement action and what is this proper sentence? That's really for your courts and, and uh, uh, to decide here and what, what is the tolerance level. But uh, I can tell you in our city, we still take enforcement action uh, to drug dealing. Okay, we have about 10 minutes left. Who's next on this side? Do we have anybody? Right up here. Oh, yeah, you're good. Um, well, thanks again, everybody, for coming. Um, I was introduced earlier, but I'm a state representative here in the state. And one thing I haven't heard any of you say is anything about the relationship with the state. Um, you guys have mentioned services quite a bit. I'm curious if there, you have all the resources you need. We, I heard about the detox facility upstate. Um, this is demonstrably a challenge for us. Um, we have lost federal funding for our uh, state hospital uh, not being run as it needs to be. We are under a lawsuit at the state um, for unconstitutionally holding people when they needed evaluations. So we have demonstrable challenges with funding related to our behavioral health system here in the state. We try to be good partners. We're working on it. Curious what your experience is in Minnesota and how that's played out at the a city level. So, so I'm gonna start first what the downtown improvement district is doing is, is one of our 2025 goals is to end homelessness and we have a, a, a committee to do that. But ordinary to do that, Joseph runs that because I don't, uh, he co-chairs co it. Um, but bringing the state in, and the county in so Kathy Penbrook with Office to End Homelessness for the state and then also the county. Um, I sit um, on many committees and so does Joseph to be a participant. Um, and then we have our own downtown group that we focus on, on more geo-relevant issues that we have. But Joseph, you wanna talk a little bit about yeah, the state? Yeah, with the state, uh, yeah, like we have our, she's the uh, state director to end and prevent homelessness. So like when we had that encampment pop up, um, the state came in and worked with, uh, they were actually on a Native American land. Uh, so they were able to work with the Red Lake tribe to repurpose some land. We had a temporary shelter there. So um, Kathy's department in the state, they were able to really secure funding for that. But in terms of like policy stuff, especially around mental health, um, Hennepin County and Met, or Minneapolis Police Department have a mental health roundtable that's been going on for like maybe 20 years. Uh, I've been on that group for now uh, close to nine, or no, actually close to seven years, but that's where we work on policy things. Um, it, we, we recently um, worked on what we call a transportation hold, you know, so if someone's, uh, you know, experiencing a crisis, there was a lot of confusion because people were using different forms. Um, we do a lot of advocacy and try to get information out from the, to change uh, policy at the state level saying hey this isn't working here in Minneapolis or this isn't working here in Ramsey County so that's where we do a lot of that work at the state level but we have a very um, what's uh, wonderful not only about our police department where we have a chief that used to be an inspector in the first precinct and subsequent inspectors who have moved up to leadership the same applies at the state level a lot of the people that are working at the state level working out in DC have worked in our community so um, uh, yeah, that, that, that's generally where we, we work on that. And then we also, just like every uh, continuum of care, we do the you know, yearly unsheltered count. Um, and we, that's where we want to really get a ro you know, like as accurate a number as we can. It's a point in time survey, but that's where we want to tell the story out, out to, you know, to DC and then also at the state level to affect change to hopefully reallocate dollars and to say like, we're seeing a lot more people who are unsheltered who are Native American or shooting heroin. 
let, let's get together and figure out something right now about this. And we have like 250 to 300 people sleeping on the train. Um, and that's another area where we worked with our Metropolitan Council uh, on, uh, you know, they developed a homeless outreach program just for Metro Transit. Yeah. Shane, do you want to say something? No. Okay. Good. Next question. Over here. How does your system address mental health? Um, you mentioned uh, addiction treatment. How does that intersect with mental health and channeling um, people who struggle with that to uh, getting services? Well, so, oh, go ahead. I'm gonna, just from a system perspective, mental health is one of the biggest barriers we face as a prosecution office because we have a mental health court. Um, so if someone has a diagnosed SPMI, which is severe and persistent mental illness, they can be eligible for mental health services, but that is, that then opens the door to whether or not they're competent. And then the big cycle and where we are starting to loop in state partners is right now the big barrier we have in Minnesota is, so you have someone that's visibly having a mental health breakdown on the street, the police respond, um, if it rises to a criminal level, like there's a disorderly conduct, if they're found not competent, we have to dismiss the case. That's just legally what we have to do. So the case goes away. They're then referred for commitment, which goes to the county attorney's office. And the reality of experiencing homelessness is if they don't have an address to serve you, your prioritization for commitment goes down regardless. So what happens and the experience on the street is they are released to the street. So they are in the same position they were in a week ago when they got arrested singing and dancing in the street. And everyone in the system knows that that's exactly where they are. So we are now in the process of examining that system to see what some of the interim steps can be so that that person isn't, it's literally a circle where they start here having a mental illness or a break and they cycle right back to that exact same spot. And I don't have the answer for that. I just, from a criminal justice perspective, my hands are, we legally have to dismiss the case. Um, if you can show a severe substance use disorder, we can help gather paperwork for certain individuals to assist in commitment. But we will only do that if we can document between the whole team, like this is someone that is so addicted to heroin or another chemical or a drug that it re requires commitment and that's a really high bar. So it's a, we want the state and the county and the city to all partner on that loophole because that's a real loophole in the system.
Yeah, I mean, that's a constant. Re-entry teams are something that we're all really focused on. Joseph has been really spearheading efforts so that when someone's coming out of the jail, the workhouse or prison, that they're not just coming out on the street in the exact same location. The other thing that's nice about the Downtown 100 program is that we know when people are getting out. Ron will know. So that client that we've now said, you know what, it's time to go serve a year. We know the release date, mm -hmm. so we can engage the reentry team a month or two before they get out so that they're engaged in services. We can track if they need sober housing. We can then monitor them through that process to try to assist the reentry teams. So we are engaging services to try to interrupt that cycle. Yep. I think we have time for one more. Where's the mic? You choose. Uh -oh. <laughs> Who's the lucky winner? Uh, thank you all. Um, I think that uh, a lot of the issues here get simplified. And what you're all talking about is very complex. So many layers to homelessness and crime. In Seattle, because we've had such tremendous growth, and I appreciate you for knowing all those stats, um, quite often it gets down to affordable housing. We don't have enough housing, but it is so much more complicated than that. And I'm just curious, does your general public really understand all the different layers that uh, you are dealing with on a daily basis, whether it's mental health issues. I am very curious about how the opioid crisis has affected your work. I realize that you've had, we've had crack epidemics and meth epidemics, but um, from the police officers I've talked to, this has been different. This has changed the nature of the um, homeless population in Seattle. Thank you. So I'm gonna answer with a personal anecdote to this question and I think Joseph can then take it from me because when I, I've been working as a community attorney for nine years. I started in our second precinct, which is where my house was. I then moved to the third precinct, then moved my family to the fifth precinct and I ended up downtown. And it wasn't until I was downtown that I was tasked with the Downtown 100 program that I had to start to understand the experience of homelessness. And I was a prosecutor, and that was my background. And it took me at least two years before I felt competent to even talk about issues of people experiencing homelessness. And Joseph has, Joseph and I have a relationship that was built up from working with him from street outreach to where I sit now. And my education was shocking. Um, the amount of information I didn't know, even as a government employee, as a prosecutor, the amount of red tape that I didn't understand, the amount of difficulty for someone. If I were to find myself homeless tomorrow, I now have the tools to navigate the system after two years of immersive education and the fact that I'm an attorney. So you take away my education and my experience, and if I were to find myself homeless tomorrow, the system would almost be impossible to navigate. So that is my personal anecdote to you because I tell you it is two years of my life that went to learning, 
to now speaking on panels where I can address some of these issues, and that comes from leaning in on the social service providers. So the one thing I don't want to mislead anyone in this room to is we are not coming to you with a solution to homelessness. We just know a lot of our population is experiencing homelessness, and this is how we've, this is the tool we've added to our chest. I think I, uh, back when I started doing outreach about 10 years ago, uh, there were just a few programs that carried Narcan, you know. Now we have not only uh, outreach programs, uh, the block-by-block uh, the, block, the organization I work for, ambassadors have Narcan, security guards in our downtown have Narcan, and like I mentioned, community members are. I mean, that's the scope of how that has changed in terms of the, um, the opioid epidemic. And then also there's more of a public health response now. Uh, I sit on the City of Minneapolis Public Health Advisory Committee. One of the things that we implemented was another task force. We wanted it to be a task force and not a committee. And we picked the composition of the group uh, and our letter of recommendation to city council, I was there for the iterations of the draft, I said only put affordable housing in there one time. You know, please stop doing it in every single paragraph because it just lost its meaning. Because when we think about affordable housing, at least in the city of Minneapolis, and like low income, medium income, and extremely low income, there are outreach workers that are at extremely low income, because that's the 30 percentile, we have 50 percentile and 80 percentile. So not many people can afford any housing, right? So I mean, it just loses its oomph, right? So one of the things that we did was we uh, picked the composition of that group to help distill down all the layers of what it is to be untreated and try to, uh, untreated with mental health or a chemical health issue, navigating a, a, a criminal justice system without a program like the Downtown 100 or some of our other restorative programs and outreach programs. We have five members on that committee that have have, have lived experience. So that's how I like to do it. I've been doing this work for quite a while. I've never slept underneath a bridge. You know, I've never stayed in our shelter system. So I just know a little bit about the human service system and I've showed up to work. The, we want to get the real experts at the table to answer those questions. So that's uh, what we like to do. Because it is, it's too multi-layered to, uh, you know, distill down in a one-pager. Yeah. Joseph, thank you. Can we thank the panel tonight? And another thank you to Dave Ross for um, being our yeah. uh, MC tonight. Thank you so much. So um, we're a couple minutes over. We apologize for that. We know you have a million things that you could be doing with your Monday night. So we'd like to thank our elected officials for coming tonight, um, our SPD representatives, and you all. Um, we know we didn't solve any problems tonight, but we hope we took the conversation a little bit further so we can get to the city that we want to live in. So thank you all. Bye. Thank you. Uh, you can read the